Has your fuse box gone haywire? Is your water pressure too weak? Or maybe your boiler needs an upgrade? They don't last forever, you know. Well, the good news is that there's a local hero in Dublin for that. So if a block sink is not helping with Wednesday's hump day, take the hassle out of it with localheroes.ie. Our online service connects you with trusted tradespeople in your area and all work comes with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgosh Energy. Try it out while listening to your podcast. You could get a quote in minutes at localheroes.ie. TNCs apply. Visit localheroes.ie for full details. The Future Proof Podcast from News Talk. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag believe in science. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. We can text us for 30 cent 53106. Coming up on this week's show, we're putting our heads in the sand when it comes to COVID and everything else that's going on in the world. Instead, we'll be talking about the science of kissing under the mistletoe. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news as we do. Joining us is Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and from Science Foundation Ireland. Dr. Ruth Freeman, you're both very welcome. Our first story is uh, obviously a... uh unwelcome story as most climate change ones are these days this is to do with an ice shelf that uh is is currently under pressure yeah, it's under more than pressure unfortunately johnny this is a story about the thwaites glacier which it's sort of the, the other name that scientists used for it is the doomsday glacier because it's so large and it already contributes through its melting quite a lot to our annual sea level rises about four percent um, but it's on the eastern side of Antarctica and, and it's sort of held in place by a, by a small ice shelf, well, relatively small, um, that's a bit like a door stopper. And it's holding the rest of this massive glacier in place. And, and the glacier itself is about the size of Britain. Um, but what's happened now is that ice shelf looks like it's about to, to fall off into the sea. And that in and of itself isn't a big problem because it's not that big, but it's holding back this huge sheet of ice, the Thwaites Glacier. And if that was to to, to crack and, and melt, as it seems likely to now over the next few years, that presents much bigger issues for sea level rise. We're, we're talking about sea level rises of around two feet uh, if that glacier melts, which might not sound like much. Um, but that really creates huge problems for cities in coastal areas all around the world. And of course, for lots of low lying island populations that are already suffering from the results of sea level rise as a result of climate change. So, I mean, I think when you read the stories here, this is scientists shouting alarm bells about as loud as they do about anything. Um, I've seen some of the coverage of it and it is it is absolutely terrifying. How do they know that this shelf is so key to that destabilization of the of the the, the larger shelf so so there's a group of about 100 scientists that are part of this international Thwaites Glacier collaboration and they've been studying the glacier for many many years and they've been looking at all different aspects of the glacier they're looking at the water flow out of the glacier and they're looking at cracks in the glacier and they can model what those cracks are likely to do so it's a bit like the windscreen in your car you know if a stone hits it you can almost predict it's weakened and if, if it gets hit again even gently these zigzag patterns will form and shatter the glass and exactly the same thing can happen in a glacier so when they 
look at all of those different measurements and, and they look at the melting from underneath, which is really where this door stopper is about to slide out because the door stopper is what's wedging the glacier to the seabed. They can model that this is possibly likely to happen in, in as soon as the next five years. So it really is cause for alarm. And it does make you think, you know, do we have to start revisiting some of these more radical interventions like perhaps solo geoengineering, you know, getting particles up into the stratosphere around the poles to try and block solar radiation. So it certainly makes me think we need to start looking at some of those dramatic interventions um, maybe sooner than we wanted to. But 10 years ago on this program, when we started talking about geoengineering, it was sort of um, uh, a, a dirty topic that uh, most people thought um, we really shouldn't be looking into, that we should be fixing the problems that we have now. And now, much like our um, our last ditch antibiotics, we're looking at last ditch efforts to try and stop this. One of the um, one of the ways I suppose we understand what's going on on the shelf is through the Copernicus program. The European Space Agency launched a series of satellites. Um, one of those is a Sentinel um, a series of Sentinel satellites, and they're mapping uh, the Earth and being able to do um, these measurements for us to give us this sort of insight. But when we talked about global sea level rise, we were typically, I suppose, imagining in our heads, or at least I was, that we were talking about a gradual thing. And of course, as as we know. In nature, there are lumps and um, and this looks like it could be a very serious situation. It, absolutely. And, and I mean, the Thwaites Glacier itself is is holding in place a lot of the Western Antarctic ice sheet. So, I mean, this could sort of be a domino effect as well, where, where even if the Thwaites Glacier goes, it destabilizes the whole Western shelf of Antarctica. Normally in science communication, we try to end with, a, you know, sort of an uplifting, you know, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is something we could do about it. But Shane, I'm going to just do a switcheroo and change the subject. Um, our next story has to do with water, uh, but um, water from... Outer space. Yeah. Uh, where did all the water on the Earth come from? A great question. Um, I just assumed it was here uh, along with all the other stuff on the Earth since the very beginning. Um, but that isn't necessarily true. So there are two theories in science uh, uh, to uh, explain where all the water came from. The first one is it's just here since the Earth was created with all the other stuff from outer space. The second is that the Earth would have been created dry and that the Earth moving through the rather messy early solar system mopped up a lot of water that was just out there clinging to dust particles. And research in Nature Astronomy just published last week would seem to suggest that that second option is perhaps more likely, um, that the, the Earth was mopping up water from outer space. And what this work is based on is, is, a, is a fantastic experiment. The Japanese sent up a robot into space and it landed on a small asteroid and it took back samples from the asteroid. And um, British scientists back on Earth examined these asteroidal dust particles and they used something called uh, uh, atom probe tomography to literally count one by one the constituent atoms and they were able to, and molecules, and they were able to show that water made up a huge amount of the, uh, the sample. And so... Yeah, wow. they say that uh, it's quite likely, therefore, that a lot of the water on the surface of the Earth came from dust particles like this. And what happened was, is that you have lots of dust being sprayed out from in the solar wind from the sun, and it mixed with uh, molecules of, of oxygen and hydrogen and water precipitated onto these tiny dust particles. And the Earth uh, revolving around the sun or orbiting around the sun 
passed through them and swept up all of the uh, the water molecules, um, which is really cool. They say that that would explain about half. The other half of uh, the water would have come from direct uh, uh, impacts from uh, things in outer space that were full of water. And uh, yeah, oh. which is I, it's it's fascinating. Like our our world is covered in water, so to think that we mopped up that much is absolutely incredible. What what this um, story also suggests is that other bodies in the solar system would have also collected water. So the Earth wouldn't have been that special, right? You know, every other planet yeah. and moon was moving through the the solar wind at the same time. And um, the reason, though, that they wouldn't still have water is they're not in the so-called Goldilocks zone where water can exist on the surface in liquid format. But it, it would have been there at earlier stages. So this is really good for people who are looking for water that was once at the southern pole of the moon, water on the surface of Venus and other places in the solar system. And that's very interesting because where there's water, there may be uh, life or there may have been life. Very, very interesting. Ruth, our third story has to do with intelligence. And it turns out that everybody is smart. That's right, Jonathan. And unusually for a scientific paper, this was inspired by a comedy sketch by Mitchell and Webb, where a very arrogant neuroscientist, after telling everyone at a drinks party how fantastic he is, is sort of put in his place. Parking is an absolute nightmare around here, isn't it? Has reversed into the tiniest of spaces. Still, I managed it. I mean, parking is not exactly brain surgery, is it? <laughs> and I should know. <laughs> Why is that? Are you a doctor? Careful. Not a doctor. I'm a brain surgeon. Big difference. Big difference. Are you an accountant too? Uh, no, I work for a charity. Oh, that's a very selfless job, isn't it? I really admire you. I don't think I could ever do what you do. <laughs> I say that because it's emotionally draining, not because it's hard. <laughs> I mean, it's not exactly brain surgery, is it? <laughs> Which, as a brain surgeon, is what I do. Well, here's your drink. Oh, Jeff, they keep you late at the Space Centre. As always. Have you met Lionel? Uh, no, hello, Lionel. So, Jeff, how do you earn a crust? Uh, oh, I'm a scientist. I, I work mainly with rockets. It's, it's, um, it's pretty tough work. Um, what do you do? Why, I don't mean to boast, but uh, I'm a brain surgeon. Brain surgery? <laughs> Not exactly rocket science. Such <laughs> a great sketch. Um, you can find a link to it on our Twitter page, by the way. If you uh, if you haven't gone down the Michelin Web rabbit hole, I highly recommend you do. If you're looking for some glimmers of, of happiness in this doom and gloom we're going through at the moment, so Ruth, um, tell me about the, the research. So, so what the researchers did was they 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 took data from 329 aerospace engineers and 72 neuroscientists, and they got them to do 12 cognitive tests. and And the tests are from something called the Great British Intelligence Test, which has been completed by 18,000 members of the British public. And they compared our rocket scientists and our brain scientists to the general public. And what they found was there wasn't really any major differences between the groups. They they did find with neurosurgeons they showed us they were slightly better on problem solving speed, but actually slightly slower on memory recall compared with the general public. But that was the only really significant difference. They did find some other small differences, but I, nothing that was statistically significant. So so really what the study found was a career, really any career is, is within the reach of any type of person. And even though it sounds like a silly study, maybe I think that's a really important message to get out to people. And particularly when you, you look at those particular fields, 
I mean, 70% in both of those fields are men. So, so I think there's definitely something about the stereotyping of certain fields and making them seem out of reach or impossible for the general public that's going to dissuade certain people from, from, from believing that they can do them. And actually, we're facing into massive shortages of both neurosurgeons and aerospace engineers. So, so this study really tells us that, that you know, most people can do anything. Yes, you, you, you learn and you train different parts of your brain, but really we all have those abilities. So it's a nice study. I always thought I had those abilities. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Although I'll tell you a funny anecdote, right? I, 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 I'm not good in any situation of jeopardy. So I think I'd be awful in both of those jobs genuinely. But I did a TV show once and uh, they got me to do a, a test to see how good a surgeon I would be. And... I know I'm going to sound a bit of like a bit like a dick saying this, but I did really well. And then the producer said, "The producer said, yeah, we're not going to run that. We're just going to run that you did really badly." And I said, "But that's not fair." And he said, "Yeah, but it's just kind of what we have to do for the show." And so on on the show, I was like, "Oh yeah, turns out I'm not going to be a great. I wouldn't be a great surgeon." And I tried to look into the camera, like to sort of imply that actually the results are fake. <laughs> TV's fake, everybody. TV's fake. Uh, Shane, our final story might be of use to, uh, to, to to everyone this Christmas. It is about absolutely meditation helps you realize you're making fewer mistakes. Uh, it doesn't unfortunately help you make uh, fewer mistakes. It just helps you realize. So it doesn't help you improve. It just helps you realize how bad you are, right? Uh, so uh, this oh. is from the Journal of Brain Sciences, uh, which great great title, and um, it's it's based on the fact that like. So many people are involved in various forms of um, meditation at the moment. And there's there would be a lot of uh, talk that it is incredibly uh, useful and helpful to improving people's lives and well-being. And so that these brain uh, scientists were interested in looking at the impact of a single session of something called open monitoring meditation. Now, this is the sort where you tune inward and pay attention to everything going on in your mind, as opposed to the more typical focusing on your breathing or focusing on a single object. And they did this with 200 people, uh, each of whom meditated for 20 minutes whilst wired up to an EEG, which is looking at brain activity. And then they gave them a so-called computerized distraction test, right, which I actually looked up online to see could I take it. But I, yeah, I found something else and read that instead. Yeah. <laughs> so the, uh, the EEG allows for a very accurate monitoring of brain activity. And it can see within milliseconds uh, if you realize that you're making a mistake. Um, and what they found was that uh, people who had meditated became far more aware of their uh, mistakes than those who hadn't meditated. Now, I did joke at the start and say that isn't very helpful, but it really is because like if, if you're able to recognize how you learn or how you don't learn, that is known to be the most impactful thing for helping you to grow. It's that self-realization. So you probably feel crap for a little bit, but in the long run, it's good for you. Well, thanks, I guess. Um, <laughs> Dr. Shane Bergen and Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland. Thanks very much for joining us. Now, intimacy is nice. It not only feels good physically, but it also... The rush of endorphins it delivers to us is, is pretty hard to beat. But while we may have a good grasp of why we engage in sex specifically, uh, why we kiss is another thing altogether. So why do we do it at all? And do all people's kiss? Well, William Jankowiak is Professor of Anthropology at the University of Nevada, and he's interested in this very question. He joins me now. Hi, William. How are you? Hey, nice to be here. 
So um, what is your interest in this subject and, and what sort of kissing do you research? My biggest question has always been about human universals. What makes us human? And uh, majoring in anthropology, the, the strong emphasis was always on diversity. Look at all the wide range in which humans participate. And behind that was another assumption that humans are really the artifact of social economic changes. And as they change, so does consciousness, so does behavior. And that, of course, is true. We can find lots of examples through history and contemporary times that, that illustrate that. But underneath that is another question. To what degree do we share commonalities? So when you um, are looking at kissing, what, what exactly are, are you talking about? Are you talking about like intimate kissing, kissing on the cheeks to say hello like they do in France? Um, and why is that of interest? Yes. Well, there was a big argument, again, from Universal, saying that kissing was a human universal. It was a way of unconsciously exploring complementary DNA in the saliva of the people we kissed. And therefore, a kissing was an evolutionary outgrowth of looking for reproductive viability. That article was published in a, in a leading journal about three years ago. So, so, sorry, what you're saying there in, in layperson's terms is that... Uh, the idea was that when we kiss, we're, we're basically sampling the DNA of the person we're kissing to see if they'll be a good mate? That's exactly right. So why you think it's hot, the person has a nice structural face and you just want to possess it. And, but in fact, and that might all be true, but whether you're going to close the deal would be whether or not you enjoyed the kiss. Meaning, and what is enjoying the kiss? It's not whether the person puts the depth of their tongue in their mouth. The <laughs> idea is is whether the saliva kind of meets and you make a nice stew. Right. Okay. That's pretty vivid uh, description. Um, right. So uh, this theory came out and, and um, you didn't like it? I wondered if it was true. And in fact, I have a colleague who's at the University of Indiana and is the director of the Kinsey Institute. He'd never done a cross-cultural study. And he said, you know, they're making claims here, but there's no empirical evidence. He and I both accepted the fact that it was probably true, since we both were influenced by evolutionary psychology of looking at universals as, as a, a real factor. And so I said, okay, looking at a small publication, I'll go through the ethnographic record. We'll document it that it indeed is true. And we can say, look, it's been asserted, but there's no really strong ethnographic information. Look, we found it. Ha ha. Nice publication. Let's forget about it. We move on. But I started looking through all the material and I discovered that it wasn't true. And I learned a long time ago, if you're going to do human universals, you have to go to the hunters and gatherers. That is the, the few uh, cultures in the world that are still persisting where people live, make their living through foraging. And th th these cultures are not influenced by media. They have no reading and writing to speak of. Uh, no, there's no reading and writing at all. So they really are in the closest you can get to some quasi-pristine. They're not really pristine. Yeah. But they come the closest of not being influenced by modern society. So I called up all my ethnographic friends or emailed them and said, did you ever see kissing? And they all started one by one saying no. Now, these are the same ones who reported in depth on intimate sexuality. And some of them had lived like, like the Ulits with, with the Aka Pygmies in Central Africa, they had lived there for 35 years on and off. Uh, 
and they and they had documented sexuality and all sorts of childbirth and whatever, and they admitted they never saw kissing. So then I started looking at the ethnographic record and coding it. And so, was, so hang on, so sorry. hang on a second, just because you're going a little bit fast here, and there's some really sure. interesting questions I have in my head. So, sure. um, when when you want to know if, if if a behavior is universal, what you're saying is that we you you look at um, different societies across the world, and there are people who study those societies. And you you basically get in contact with the experts on those societies and say, is this behavior written down in a report or an observation or a, a, a paper anywhere? And if not, then then that's the a starting point. Um, yeah, well, here the starting point is is that at Yale University there is the Human Areas Relation File, which is a compilation that they put together of over a, over two hundred plus cultures, and these are ranked on social hierarchy, on stratification, on clothing, on how they build cabinets, material constructions, and whatnot. But in that, they have little sippets. So you can just type in marriage and they'll drop down whatever the ethnographer had written on marriage or, or you write down sex and it'll drop down that. So you can start off by just beginning to see if that's there. The problem with that is, is ethnographers did not write on everything. So the question is, if they didn't write on it, did that mean it didn't exist? Right. So I always look at what's been written. So I go to the files and look at that. But then I always like to go to the people, particularly the foragers, and ask them, you haven't written on this, but did you see this? I did the same thing when I did the Romantic Love Study in the 1992s, when I was able to document that Romantic Love was a human universal. And I went to the ethnographers and said, did you see evidence of this? And then, but they never wrote on it. And so I use that same methodology here, looking at what was written, and then looking for supplemental to the ethnographers to see if they had seen it themselves. So you, you, you've, you've done this before on, on love, and you, you yes. found that love was universal, but yes. kissing in a romantic or intimate way is not. How common is it exactly? Well, we finally found it documented about 46% of our sample. Uh, but this is very interesting. We found no evidence and foragers in tribal societies in subtropical and tropical environments. In other words, where people don't wear much clothes, there's very little kissing. Huh. But, where, but where did we see a lot of kissing? In the Arctic zone. Think Eskimos. Think the Chukchi natives of Siberia. They're fully clothed. The only thing that's available for any sensual contact is the human face. But in other cultures, the whole body is available for sensuality. And in those, they don't discover kissing. But kissing is discovered where the body's fully clothed. All right. Well, that sounds like a correlation, right? It's, that's a difficult thing to prove. But, but it's an interesting idea, the idea that um, the less clothes you wear, the, the less likely your society is to kiss on the lips. Yeah, you can almost take it to modern society where we're all clothed except for the face. Um, what was um, the reactions of other cultures that don't kiss? What, what did they think of people who kiss? They presumably thought it was disgusting. Yes, they thought it was disgusting and weird. There, in 1890, there was a Jesuit priest in South Africa, in Juno, at a port city where lots of natives had come in. And there was a tribal group called the, the Tonga. And, and they saw two Europeans kissing. And they both look to one another because he records it in his journal. And that was written down. He says, oh, look, they're eating each other's saliva. That's disgusting. 
<laughs> I mean, if you pause and think about it for a second, it is quite disgusting. Um, the, the, do we have a an earliest re- record of of kissing with lips, and what does that tell us about the universality of it? Well, it's interesting. The earliest that we begin seeing is when societies become complex, when they become state level societies. Think of ancient Egypt or the Old Kingdom. Think of Rome. Think of medieval uh, uh, Japan. China, the earliest evidence we have is in the Han Dynasty, but it could come much earlier. Han Dynasty, about 600, 200 AD or so. Uh, but it probably could also become much, much, much earlier. But now, why is that? Why do we see kissing? become more manifested among the cultural elite. And my hypothesis is the cultural elite is engaged in sensuality. Think of the slow banquet. Most of us eat quick and then you're done. Think of a fast lunch. But if you think of a long-term banquet that lasts three, four, five hours, in the Roman cases, days, the idea is not to satiate yourself quickly, but to delay pleasure and extend it. And in that erode, you begin not having sexual intercourse for just an immediate orgasmic relief. You begin to have a word we call eroticism, the slow tangulation of the tease that slowly then brings it to that. And in that cultural environment, you find the elite discovering kissing. And then it gets cultural diffusion. It moves out into the masses. Um. What about animals then? Do 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 other animals kiss? I've never seen a frog snog. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, other other animals. Well, you see, we're presumably the only animals that that actually do mouth to mouth kissing, right? Yeah, there there is a discussion of whether chimpanzees kiss, and and in some way, the real problem on this, like you'll see dogs will go up and smell each other's mouth, and sometimes even rub their tongues. And they go, oh, look at that, dogs are kissing. But they're not really kissing. They're checking out whether the other dog ate something, whether there's food around that they can get to. So they're really searching for food via, via a lip exchange. Uh, kissing in terms of an actual sense of expressing intimacy, as you noted, uh, might indeed be, be human. Though there is some suggestive of maybe the higher primates engaging in, in it somewhat, but we're not sure because you can't ask them. Yeah, what about the perverts of the apes, um, the bonobos? Do they kiss? Yes, they do. And 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 and, and in that case, it's very clear they're not looking for food. Uh, so it is part of the the whole sexual repertoire, which again would link in. There's something going on here with humans that we build on it. But what's very interesting is is that not all humans discovered kissing or thought kissing was viable. But all humans groom, all humans touch. All humans stroke, but they can stroke any part of the body. So sensuality is a basic part of being human. But the lips are not necessarily the only place by which humans express themselves. Going back to this idea of of DNA swapping, I mean, we do know that um, humans smell strangers' hands after shaking them. We know that we sense DNA from smelling um, hormones from from people, and, and actually we... We can choose partners sometimes based on their compatibility. How do we know that it's not true that when people kiss, um, they aren't sampling the DNA of a potential partner? You know, that's interesting because there's a recent article that's making the same point. He's saying, okay, it might not be universal, but look, it's they, some people are using it as a way of coding or seeing compatibility. 
but because of its um, ubiquitousness, it's kind of hard to to prove in a way, is it? Because so many people kiss, it's hard to say that that was a factor in their choice of mate. Uh, yes. You can make a proposal they're looking for DNA, but is that really the reason why they closed the deal and form a relationship? Is that the only thing? I mean, that's a really interesting hypothesis if you think about it. Maybe mm-hmm. if the people who divorced, they, they didn't, weren't following their DNA lied and they should have been more consistent. They really keyed on status and looks rather than on their DNA, and therefore they suffer now the consequences. But that's a sidebar of a hypothesis. Well, well maybe um, physical or sensual compatibility may, may be a part of it, though. When you have a bad kiss with somebody, that that's it it's over and i remember once a long time ago uh, kissing a girl and as soon as it began it was oh everything was over because of that lack of compatibility so maybe it's not necessarily dna but maybe it's some other sort of compatibility that we're sampling when we when we kiss strangers. You see, that's I, a very good point because we do know that smell affects people's attractiveness. There's been right. lots of studies of, of women smelling sweatshirts and 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 finding this is favorable. The only thing they have is the smell of the sweatshirts. They have no nothing else, and they're finding this is attractive and that. So we know smell is a factor. So perhaps kissing is not DNA, but it's really the opportunity to smell. And what you're really doing is smelling, but assuming I'm not smelling i'm kissing i should say there's the great oceanic kiss sometimes called the malaysian kiss and or sometimes the eskimos were called rubbing noses which they never really did but what you did is you put your whole mouth over the person but they're not really kissing in that context they're really smelling so you know perhaps kissing is just another way of getting to smelling which would make sense because in a culture where people are not wearing clothes and they're not kissing they're still holding in that so they are smelling I fear we may have put people off um, kissing with your <laughs> descriptions of it, um, William. But either way, it was really interesting speaking with you. Professor for Anthropology at the University of Nevada, William Jankoviak, thanks very much for your time. A lot of fun. Thank you. Not much kissing going on in our household um, because of COVID, no other reason. But uh, here's hoping uh, for for an uptick in 2022. Right. That's it from us for this week. Thanks to Aidan McKelvey, who's producing, Simon Keane and Garrett Mulhall, JJ Clark as well as Steve McLoon, who was on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Dundeal has the largest range of electric vehicles in Ireland from Ireland's trusted premium car dealerships. That's why you will find MSL Park Motors Skoda on Dundeal. Stop by MSL Park Motors Skoda showroom on Dundeal today and connect with them for great deals on electric vehicles. Dundeal, for electric vehicle deals to feel great about from all of Ireland's trusted car dealerships.